This series comes from uh, a little children's book. There's no such thing as a dragon. It's the story of, of Billy Bigsby, and Billy Bigsby has this little dragon in his room, and he goes down and tells his mom, and his mom says, there's no such thing as a dragon. And the dragon then proceeds to begin growing and growing and growing and getting larger, but since they've already denied the dragon exists, they refuse to acknowledge it. And before you know it, the dragon is picking up the house and taking it on a big ride. And this book actually is a fantastic metaphor for what happens in our lives so many times, that there's things in our life that we ignore, there's things in our life that we pretend aren't there, there's things that are damaging to relationships, maybe in our finances, maybe in our spiritual life, but there are things that when they're ignored, when they're denied, when they're pushed into the background, they don't go away. They just keep growing in the background, and they can do great damage. In fact, uh, the the author of uh, the book of Proverbs, he has this wise saying, Solomon, and he says that the prudent see danger and take refuge, that they change their course that those who are wise see, see the danger in a situation and they don't just ignore it, but they do something about it. And that's really the heart of what this series is about. And like I said, the dragon we're going to talk about today has to do with a reference point in life. And let me just uh, ask you, anybody like hiking in the woods? Come on, it's Colorado. I know lots of you like hiking in the woods, right? Um, I remember doing a survival training when I was a kid, and they would teach you about hiking in the woods and how not to get lost and uh, freeze to death, you know, or something. And so uh, we did this survival training, and what they would tell you, one of the things is if you get lost, you need a good reference point. And so, you know, you find a high, if you can find a high point and and actually form a, uh, you know, have a fixed reference point in the distance, um, you you can sort of head in the right direction, right? Versus what a lot of people do is they look around at all the trees around them and the bushes and shrubs. And and what happens when your reference points are just those things that are immediately around you, you end up just typically going in circles. In fact, a lot of people, they think they're getting somewhere uh, when, when they're lost, but they're just going around in circles in the woods. And a lot of people have died in the woods when they're lost, because of that, they don't have any kind of fixed reference point. They just keep going around and around until they lose strength and lose energy. And like going in circles in the woods, today we're talking about another dragon that actually has the potential to grow in your life and to steal your joy and to damage your relationships and actually make you very ineffective for God's kingdom. And that is the tendency to look around and compare ourselves to other people, that to take our cues of our worth and our value and our status from other people around us, to have other people be our reference point. And, you know, I think uh, is, we, we all kind of do this, and it starts out typically when you're young, actually. It's kind of funny watching the transition in kids' lives. Anybody, maybe you have, uh, you're a parent of a toddler, um, and it, it's funny, I remember my kids when they were little, like, they just don't care what other people think. You're totally unaware, right? You're just like wandering around in a diaper, like, ah, you know, and, and throwing a fit, do whatever. You don't care. And it's kind of funny as your kids grow up to watch this transition point in their life where they become acutely aware of what other people think. I have kids approaching teenagers, and it's kind of funny, you know, watching that in your kids' lives when all of a sudden they start showering. You're like, what happened? Right? <laughs> 
and it's a good thing you grow up and, and quit just wearing a diaper in your shower, right? But it's also kind of sad as you watch this transition happen in um, your kids' lives where they become so worried about what other people think, right? Where it, where it becomes consuming. And this doesn't really go away when you get older, does it? Typically, um, you, you know, the price tag just gets bigger on what it takes to feel like you're doing okay, what it takes to project success to others, what it takes to feel like you're okay when it comes to, you know, the social hierarchy. And as you, as you grow up, and for many people, as you have kids, it's not just you anymore. Um, all of a sudden, you're aware on how your kids reflect on you as well. And for some, that's a struggle. It's like now, as you look around at other people and what their kids are doing and what their kids are accomplishing and, you know, how, how good their kids are, and, you, and, and it all begins to reflect back on you, and you become hyper aware of this. And I think it's worse than ever in our social media-driven culture. Because now, for so many, um, you are hyper aware of the details of hundreds of other people's lives. And, and most of them, if you're really honest, they're called friends, but they're more like acquaintances, right? Some of them you haven't seen in 20 or 30 years, and yet you know what they had for dinner last night and the fact that they're on vacation in Maui. And you're a little bitter about it. And this happens over and over and over again, right? As we have this, this culture, some of you, um, you are kind of obsessive. And if you're honest, you're a little neurotic about how often you check social media and, and the cues you draw on the whole social hierarchy and where you fall in place. And it kind of, kind of gets at you a lot, right? It's not easy to avoid this trap of looking around and comparing ourselves to others and drawing our reference point from what we see of those on our left and those on our right. And one of the reasons this dragon is actually so dangerous is that when we draw our reference point um, from other people, there's never a place where it ends. There's never a place where it's enough, right? Have you noticed it? No, no, no matter how well you do, there's always someone with more of whatever you're trying to compare yourself to. Like if you look over on one side and they've got, you know, they seem smarter, they have more money, they're better looking, they're taller... They're more cool than you are. They seem more happy. Their family's more put together. They're more stylish, right? They get better grades. They have more house. They drive more car. And then the list just goes on and on and on. Or maybe it's their kids, you know, or their spouse. And, and you look at what they have. And it all leads you to feeling less than. To feeling like you don't match up. You, you don't meet this standard. Or maybe it's the opposite. Like you, you actually, you look over on the other side, you see folks who are maybe, you know, less smart or less wealthy or less funny or less skinny, right? Win less. And there's this thing that rises up in your heart that actually um, you don't mind them so much. In fact, there's a subtle sense, and you wouldn't ever, this wouldn't be ever like something you would project or admit to, but there's a subtle sense of superiority that rises up in your heart. In fact, for some people, I think they actually miss out on a lot of good relationships because they stack the deck in their life with only people that they feel like their social hierarchy is slightly above. And they miss out on really rich relationships because of that. And at the, at the heart of this is just this sense of not feeling like you measure up. 
And as you look at others, just this deep discomfort for, for who you actually are and who you've become. And for some, it's like a constant broken record in your mind of you'll never measure up, you'll never be good enough, you'll never be pretty enough, you'll never be talented enough. And in fact, I bet some of you have actually developed some destructive habits to cope with that little voice inside your head. And you know what the, the truth is, is when your reference point in life comes from other people around you, it will end up stealing your joy, damaging your relationships, and making you very ineffective for living for God's kingdom. And some of you may have experienced this uh, in your life. Some of you may be experiencing this right now. Some are buried in debt, like we talked about last week. We, we took some time. We talked about finances. And uh, just some of you are buried in debt because you've been trying to chase someone else's lifestyle, and it came from comparison, right? Some of you, you're just working yourself way beyond the point that you should because you're driving yourself so hard, you're driving your kids so hard, because, and honestly, if, like, if you stop and break down like the motivation behind that, it's this fact that you just don't feel like you measure up. And there's this constant thing that you're trying to reach and achieve in a way your kids have to be. Um, but ultimately, if you're real honest, it's not so much because, you know, you say you just want them to be all they can be, but honestly, there's this thing about how they reflect on you too and how they make you feel about yourself. Maybe for some, you just never experience internal peace or joy because you're just so consumed with what other people think and what other people are doing. And it drives that like neurotic thing that you just, you check social media nonstop. I mean, it's like you can't help it. And you know, you, you don't like it, but it's like, why, why, why am I always doing this? And instead of being four people in your life and, and looking at relationships as, as, as people that God has placed in your life to love and influence for him, um, instead there's this subtle competition you feel towards everyone in your heart and in your life. And so as we look at this topic today, um, here's my hope. My hope is that we will become more aware of the dragon and more aware of when we start to do this. Because as we've seen throughout the series, recognizing and acknowledging the dragon is a big part of the battle, isn't it? It's half the battle. And a couple weeks ago, uh, Jason did a talk very targeted towards the men in the room. And I'm just going to say, well, this topic is going to be very applicable to everyone. I know this topic is going to lean a little more and maybe hit home a little more for some of the ladies in the room. Because I think guys do this, but it's oftentimes not so subtle and not so ingrained in our, in our psyche and in our life. And so some of you ladies, I just want you to tune in and pay attention because I think this may be an area where you can find some freedom in your life. And so in order to help us uh, take a look at this dragon, I want to look at a scripture from a text that's been around for 3,000 years, and uh, it's in Ecclesiastes. If you have your Bibles, you can start turning over to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. It's written by a famous author, King Solomon. Um, this guy, Solomon, is known as being the wisest man in the world who ever lived uh, up until the time Jesus walked the earth, right? 
He had kings and queens that would come and sit at his feet. He brought the nation of Israel to the peak of its wealth and its influence. He built the temple. He built palaces. He, uh, uh, he gathered the largest gold treasure on the face of the earth. I mean, this guy has seen more, done more, accomplished more than you and I ever will in our lives. And he writes some of what we call the wisdom literature in the scriptures, Proverbs, and the Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes, and some of the Psalms, actually, of praise to God. And this book of Ecclesiastes is actually this, this record in Solomon's life of sort of the quest for true meaning in life, the quest of what is life really about. And he tries everything, right? He tries all the wealth. He has all, lots of women. I mean, he tries everything, and he comes around, and the conclusion really is all that is fairly meaningless, that he thought that was going to be the thing that brought him meaning and satisfaction in life. And one of the biggest words that's used over and over again in this book is meaningless, 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 right? In fact, you read it, you're like, oh, that's a little depressing. But I think the guy has some real insight when it comes to understanding humanity. And, and what Solomon would tell us in his writings is if you want to avoid a life with a lot of regret, you'd be wise to listen to some of these things. And so here's how he starts out in, in verse 4 of chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes. Uh, he says this, And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. That all this striving, all this, you know, looking around and trying to match up and, and working so hard, all this drivenness, it actually, there's a root cause behind it. And as Solomon looks at it, he says, I, I think that cause is envy. And that's actually a word we don't really use that much in, um, you know, modern society. We don't think about it that much, but it actually is at the root of so much. It really is a dragon that's living in the closet and just growing. And see, the problem with looking around and basing our reference point for how am I doing? Am I okay? How do I stack up? The problem with placing your reference point as you look around in other people isn't simply that it's wrong or even that it's not helpful. The problem is that it's completely rooted in something and it feeds something within us and that something is very destructive and that's envy. Envy is actually noted as, uh, as one of the seven deadly sins. That emerged from a fourth century monk, and then uh, Pope Gregory I in 590, he consolidated the list of the seven deadly sins. It was repeated in Dante's Divine Comedy. Envy. And Jesus and the writers of Scripture had some very harsh things to say about envy. Jesus' brother James uh, said this, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. That this thing, envy, leads to things, and the things that it leads to are not good. Peter says this, he says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. These things all go together. Jesus uh, tells us something about envy. And he tells us where the root 
of envy is. In Mark chapter 7, verse 21, it says this, For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and and defile a person. It comes from within, Jesus says. It's an issue of the heart. And Jesus, throughout Jesus' teachings, he's always drawing us back and reminding us that the things that, we, that the things that are so concerning that we should be concerned in life, they have a root, and the root is in the heart, right? In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, maybe Jesus' most famous sermon, he talks about this, and, and uh, he talks about how all these things are actually issues of the heart, and he takes something because the religious leaders and religious people of the day were getting really good at checking off boxes and going, well, I'm doing really good because I can check off that box, right? And so there were, you know, Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount, hey, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. And everybody's like, check that one off, good to go. And Jesus would say, but I tell you that if you've lusted after a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart because it's what the root is in the heart, right? You've heard it said, don't commit murder. And everybody's like, whoo, check that one off. But I tell you, if you've hated your brother or sister, you've already killed them in your heart. That the issue, the root of it all is in your heart. In fact, it's interesting because God deals with envy. And the first time I think he actually addresses it starts all the way back with Cain and Abel. When Cain is envious of his brother, and he kills his brother, like that, that is something that starts in his heart, right? And God says, "Be be careful before he kills his brother, because sin crouches at your door." There's a deep issue here you need to deal with. And then we see in uh, actually in Exodus chapter 20, as God gives the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, as He's rescued His people and then coming into covenant with them, and in His top ten, it's really interesting because you have kind of you know all the all the famous ones that if I ask you to quote the Ten Commandments, you can usually get don't kill, don't steal, you know, don't murder. Um, let's see, a lie, yeah, there. Uh, you know, you could usually get some of them, but there's this little one towards the end: Thou shalt not covet. And what's interesting is on all all the others, it's kind of like you can check off, most of them you can check off the box and go, oh, I think I'm doing pretty good. But you get to this one on the end, and here it's not like something somebody else can just look at you and go, oh, he's totally blowing it, right? It's an issue of the heart. It's where, where is your heart at? And I think find that so fascinating that it's not just a outside behavior, but God is saying, hey, how's your heart? How's your heart when it comes to the way you relate to me, when it comes to the way you relate to others? Because I know if you allow this envy thing in your life, it's going to bring you places in life where you never thought you would go. So you got to deal with your heart. It's easy to look good on the outside, but where's your heart at? In fact, Solomon says something else really interesting about envy in, in Proverbs, in the book of Proverbs. He says, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. That these two things are in contrast, you see, because it is an issue of the heart, right? And envy actually is the opposite of experiencing peace in your deepest, innermost place, your, your heart, right? The core of who you are. How many of you, show of hands, would like to experience a heart at peace? Yeah, all of us, hopefully, and 
And if not, you just don't like raising your hand in church, right? I'm not raising my hand. You might call on me. Yeah, you want a heart at peace. We all want to experience joy, actually. We all want to experience peace, that rest in our heart, that, that thing that's different than that constant striving that we experience so frequently, right? And Solomon would say, actually, envy is, is the, the opposite of that. Envy rots the bones. Envy's that little thing that's like, oh, that's icky in there, right? In fact, another thing Solomon says about the heart in Proverbs 4 is this. He says, guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Guard your heart with all diligence. How's your heart? How's your heart? What are you allowing to grow in your heart? Guard your heart. See, Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things. We, always, we have this saying, like, just follow your heart. And I think it's a totally lousy saying. <laughs> because I think a lot of times, especially young ladies, I, I, I like to tell young ladies, don't follow your heart. Follow, listen to your mama. Don't listen to your heart. Listen to your mama. Because your mama has your best interests in mind. Your heart, it's going to try lying to you a lot. And for so many in the room that are a little older, you can say, ouch, right? Because you've experienced that at some point in your life. The heart is deceitful oftentimes, which is why we are to guard what grows in our hearts. Why, why so often, like, as we're talking about, like, the, the issue isn't the surface behavior. I mean, yeah, we, that that's, needs to be dealt with. But the issue is, where's your heart at? Where's your heart at? And we get, it's so easy to come to church and, you know, put on a smile and look like everything's fine when inside our hearts are not in a good place. Guard your heart, he would say. And if you're not careful, envy, this little dragon of envy begins and it usually starts out small and it usually starts out as this thing over here that, you know, kind of bugs you on the side, but before you know it, this thing can grow and it can lead you into all sorts of destructive places. See, envy is that little thing in us that, that secretly celebrates when others fail. I think that's a really in, good indication of what Jesus says of, hey, this thing actually comes from within us, right? Do you know it's very hard to love, truly love people you envy? It's very hard to truly show them the love of Jesus. Because inside, you're just secretly comparing yourself and, and trying to outdo someone, right? In fact, 1 Corinthians tells us that the definition of love, agape love, the love of God, is um, love does not envy. It's one of the definitions of, of love. Envy is that little thing that twists a good thing that happens to a friend in your life to why is the world raining on me? It's the inability to really rejoice when somebody you love is experiencing something good because it's that envy thing that rises up and goes, well, well why is my life this way? Why, why do I walk around with like a, cloud, a little personal cloud and everywhere I go, it's raining right on my head? It's that little thing that twists that. Envy is so destructive 
In fact, it tells us in, in Matthew, it tells us that it was because of envy that the leaders, the religious leaders, turned Jesus over to be crucified. Envy literally killed the Son of God. And Solomon, he looks around and he says, man, this thing, this envy thing is at the root of so many other destructive things. And at the root of envy, what feeds into envy is this, this habit of looking to the right and looking to the left and drawing my reference point from other people and trying to judge if I'm okay based on those I'm comparing myself to. And you know what's crazy? This was a problem Solomon recognizes 3,000 years ago. <laughs> you don't think the scriptures are relevant? Come on. <laughs> and so I don't think we can blame it all on social media. I mean, hey, that's a great scapegoat, isn't it? And some of you actually, that probably a really helpful thing in your life would be just to delete that app, you know? Instead of obsessively being on it 18 times a day, just pop on every once in a while and check it and look at the cute photos and get off, right? And your soul would be better because of that. Your heart would be better because of that. But I don't think we can blame it all on social media. So back to Ecclesiastes, Solomon goes on. He says this, I, I saw that all toil, all achievements spring from one person's envy of one another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Meaningless, he says. You're not going to find life there. You're not going to find that fulfillment you want there. You're not going to find that peace and that joy that you want there. No, it's more like chasing after the wind. Have you ever tried to chase the wind? Yeah. How'd that work for you? Not so good, huh? <laughs> no, see, the thing about chasing the wind is you, you, you never catch it, do you? You never catch it. In fact, it's, it's kind of like um, I, I used to go and work on this ranch when I was a kid, and uh, the, there was this dog that would tear off every time a car would drive by, you know, and he'd go down the dirt road just trying to catch the, the bumper. And, and I just think like, well, what if you catch it? I mean, he'd never catch it, but like, what if you do? And then it's like, ah, he goes for a ride, right? Or then you have a bumper in your mouth. It's like, and see, sometimes life is that way as you run so hard after something that you think's going to bring you meaning and think's going to bring you fulfillment, and you catch it. And it's like, oh, actually, that didn't do it for me. And for so many people, uh, you know what Einstein's, I think it was Einstein's definition of insanity? You've heard it, right? doing the same thing the same way over and over and expecting a different result. But I'm telling you, when it comes to seeking peace and fulfillment in life, we do this all the time. Guys, you're, you're especially um, guilty of this, is, is we think, if I just get this thing, right, I'll be happy. And then you get it. And you're like, eh, that didn't really do it for me. But instead of pausing to go, maybe the thing isn't really the thing, maybe there, because you show up and you get there and then there moved over to there. Have you noticed that? Maybe the thing really isn't the thing that you thought it was. Instead of pausing, you just pick a new thing. Well, okay, well, I didn't do it, but this will. You watch your kids do this all the time, don't you? That didn't do it. That made me happy for about 30 seconds. Now, what's the thing? What's the next thing I'm going to be? And, and let me just tell you, like, if you're a driven person and you like getting stuff done, um, this is a tendency we struggle with. 
And you're probably actually kind of arguing back with me, with me in your mind right now. You're like, well, what are you saying? Like, we shouldn't accomplish stuff and, you know, like get somewhere and do valuable things? No. And Solomon isn't either. Like, if you're arguing here, just so you don't misunderstand what he's saying here, he, dudes, he's not saying, so you might as well just sit around in the basement playing video games all day long. That's not what he's saying either. He says this in verse 5, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Literally, in the Hebrew, it's this idea of consuming their own flesh, self-destructing. He, Solomon isn't arguing about productivity. productivity. He's not saying don't build great businesses and do things that benefit lives and, and, you know, build good stuff and, you know, make great relationships and all of this or even have fun and, and have some recreation. I think the thing he's getting at is the thing in your heart that thinks that that's going to be the thing that brings you fulfillment. The thing in our hearts that tends to want to make that our reference point that wants to judge how am I doing? Am I okay by where we're at and what we're achieving? He's not arguing against productivity. He's talking. He's dealing with the motivation. What drives us? What drives our heart? He goes on to say this in verse 6. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. And see that the language here carries the idea of it's better to have one hand open Okay, God, here's here's an open hand. What do you want to place in this hand? I I don't need everything. Give me what I need. You know, Jesus taught us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Okay, God, you can place it in my hand. You can take it out. Then to have two fists tightly clenched around everything we can, grabbing everything we can and holding on to it for dear life. And see, that's our tendency. When others are a reference point, when we draw our conclusions about ourself, about looking around, our tendency is to try to get everything and then cling to it so tightly because if we lose any of it, we will lose a rung. We'll lose status. And I think for some of you, if you could get this, you would actually find some peace. You would actually find some some contentment. Contentment doesn't mean you don't work hard and, and, and try to do some valuable good things for the benefit of others and for the sake of the kingdom of God. No. It has to do with where's your heart at? Where are you drawing your fulfillment from? Where are you drawing your joy? And if you could get this, I think for some of you, it would really bring peace to your life. He goes on to say this in verse 7. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. This, this means he had no heir in the culture. That's a really big deal thousands of years ago. Number one, you don't have anybody to take care of you when you're old. Um, number two, there's nobody to leave it to, everything that you're working so hard. Because you do realize you have to leave it, right? You don't get to take it? Like, you didn't come into the world born in that three-piece suit. Just saying, right? So he says, there was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. 
See, it's this constant striving thing, right? When other people are your reference point, maybe, maybe the wealth isn't your deal. Maybe substitute popularity. Maybe substitute the way you feel when you compare, you know, your, the way you look to other people or you, your kids to their kids, how you're perceived. For whom am I toiling, he asked. Why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? He has this, like, existential crisis moment where he realizes this. He has this recognition. He stops and asks this. Some of you, you've never stopped to ask, what what drives me? Why am I doing everything I'm doing? Why is it that I, I can't even enjoy what I have? It's a powerful question to ask. And Solomon says this. He says, this too is meaningless. A miserable business. And see, some of you can identify with this. Because you feel the internal misery of living life with others as your reference point. Of the fact that there's never a finish line. There's never a spot where you just are at peace. There's always something within you that's striving. And it's doing damage to your relationships. It's doing damage to your heart. And, and, and it's really hard to follow God into what he's calling you towards. See, the heart of the issue is this, who or what I will use as the reference point to answer that question, am I okay? Am I doing all right? Who or what you use to answer that question is vital. Who will you use? Will you allow your neighbors, your relatives, maybe that that brother-in-law, sister-in-law, you're just always, they just get under your skin because, you know, you can't ever keep up with them. Your, your co-workers, those you go to school with and they just always are doing better and they're more popular. Are you going to allow advertisers to define that for you? little info on those, all those free apps you know you like to use. Um, if, if the product is free, you're the product. It's called data mining. You know that, right? They are finely tuned to addicting you. And it isn't for your benefit. It's for ad revenue. Just, just telling you that, right? They're selling your data. You can allow, like, how much stuff you have, the amount of recognition you, you're able to achieve, what, what you drive, the way you look. How, how smart you feel like you are. And you know, the, the hard part is none of those are, are bad things. In fact, a lot of those. I mean, you can use your family as a reference point. And see, the issue is this. What, what's your identity going to be in? What's your reference point going to be? The is, issue isn't the thing. Even a good thing, when your identity is centered in that thing, it will bring destruction in your life. You know, your marriage was never meant to be your identity. It was meant to to be, it's a good thing. It's God-ordained, right? Your family was never meant to be your identity. When your identity lands in those things, 
destruction happens in your life. See, if you don't actually believe there's a God who loves you and knows your name, um, I totally understand why you would pick one of these other things as your source of identity. I mean, I almost feel like, like, how can you not? Especially in the society we live in, right? But if you really believe what Jesus says, and you believe there's a, a gracious heavenly father, a perfect heavenly father who loves you, who knows your name, who cares for you, who knows your needs before you even ask, and he is the one you're called to place your identity in, it really should be a game changer for you. John says this when it comes to identity. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, he says, See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. Think of the love you have for your child if you have kids. And that's very imperfect love, isn't it? That's very, oftentimes we're very selfish. A non-selfish, a perfect, lovingly, heavenly father. How great, how much our father loves us. Paul tells us, actually, um, he's adopted us. That if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you've been adopted into the family of God. And here's the cool thing. Adoption in the culture is very different than what we think of adoption as like when, sometimes when we think of infant adoption. Like, you know, you get this cute little baby, you take him home, right? In this culture, they didn't even have a concept around infant adoption. It was as normally when wealthy people were older and their own kids were complete train wrecks, <laughs> they would look around and they would go, well, that's a good kid over there. He's all grown up. and So I'm going to adopt you into my family. I'm going to choose you. I want you to be in my family. In fact, uh, uh, Augustus Caesar was um, Julius Caesar's nephew, actually, that he adopted and who became then the heir to the throne, right? So this was the common practice. And the heart behind this is, hey, God loved you enough. He knew you. He saw you, the real you, and he still wanted you. That he wasn't surprised. That he saw you and he said, I I know them. I know what's in their heart. And I love them and I want them. It's at the heart of the gospel. That he chose you. He ran after you. He loved you enough to come, take on flesh, to live and to die for you. And if there's a God who loves you and who knows your name and sent his own son, Jesus came in the flesh, wouldn't it make sense to find out what he says about your true reference point for living? Your true identity? And to base your life on that? Not on the changing ever-shifting identity of those around you? In fact, Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. He says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. I like this. I don't normally read out of this translation, but I like the way it put this. You can't take credit for this. It's, It's a gift from God. You didn't earn it. You didn't, like wake up one day and clean yourself up enough that finally he was like, okay, 
No, he loved you. He went after you. He adopted you. He saw you in all your sin and all your shame. In fact, in other passages, it says, when we were still his enemies. And he says, I want him. I want her. You can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. It's freely given, right? Verse 9, salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so that none of us can boast about it. See, the gospel, uh, Tim Keller puts it this way, the gospel is the great equalizer. Because at the foot of the cross, we're all on an equal platform. Which is why for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, the gospel has brought people together that otherwise would never hang out with each other. That would never have relationship. Because at the foot of the cross, we all stand on an equal platform. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. We are all people that have been saved by grace, not because of what we have done, but because of the free gift of God in our lives. The gospel is the equalizer. It's the thing that we can say, I am no better than you, and you are no better than me. We all need a Savior. He says, for we are God's masterpiece. We're his masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. You're his masterpiece. And see, here's what I know. is for some of you, this, this thing, this comparison, this looking at others as your reference point, it has such a hold on your heart that you, you can't embrace that right now. But my prayer for you is that the Holy Spirit would allow you to. Because when you hear that, you're his masterpiece. You're saying, no, well, not me. You are his masterpiece. He's, he loved you enough to come after you. He loves you. And, and he saved you for a purpose. He has things he wants you to get to in this life. There's people he wants you to love and and embrace so that they can know Jesus in a deeper way. And you know what? If you're constantly living, looking at other reference points, you're not going to get to it. It's only when you can embrace what he did for you and stand at the foot of the cross as a sinner saved by grace, very imperfect, Very unworthy and yet worthy because of the blood of Jesus. Loved because you have a heavenly father who loved you enough to send his son to die for you. It's only when you can actually get that. And let it not just sink into your head, but sink into your heart that you know that and embrace that. That you can actually live life from that the way he's calling you to live. You are his masterpiece. Created to do things what he's called you to do in this world, to love people. It's very hard to love people the way he's called you to love people when you're always using them as a reference point, isn't it? When you're trying to draw your identity from them. Find your identity in the one who loved you and saved you and calls you his own. I have a question I want to leave you with as we sing this song. Is my reference point firmly placed in the love of my Heavenly Father? 
Is it? Or am I just constantly looking around trying to draw, answer the question, am I okay with what I see online or what I, how I feel about my, so, my circle of friends and where I stack up, what I see when I look in the mirror? How's your heart? How's your heart? Would you stand? What I just want to invite you to do as we, as we close, as we sing this little song, that if you, if you know, I don't think my identity is firmly anchored, I, I want to invite you just, you could lift your hands up to him, just a posture of receiving, and, and ask the Holy Spirit to do a work in your heart that he would help anchor and cement you in the identity and the love of the Father for you, that you are his masterpiece, created in him to do amazing things that he's called you to do.